things, obviously, in our narrative have been pretty intense, right? I mean, it left in darkness. Um, and so we are kind of hitting the point in the passage right now where um, the baby is about to be birthed. If you can, if you can use that imagery, God's people is about to be drawn out. The world has been dark for three days, and Pharaoh is like, get out of my face. But before we see what happens, it also is the turning point. This is the, the pillar that the, that the Israelites actually turn back to for the rest of their story. And even today, like this week, Jews all over the world are pressing pause to reflect on what happened in this particular passage. And so this is not only, we're not only going to study what happened in the redemption, but we're going to see an institution of a holiday that happens. And I'm actually going to grab some water, but I actually love holidays. I'm a deep, oh, thank you. I am like, um, formerly before we moved up here, I was an event planner for a while. And so like all things, parties and events and holidays are my jam. Um, and so, but I love holidays because they're special and fun. I love that I get to like teach my kids and like feel all the feels. But I want to ask you guys like some of your Easter traditions because we're going to learn. I mean, you probably already know that Easter and Passover are kind of like a woven thread for us. But for me growing up, Easter always meant that we were at my grandparents' beach house in Ocean Isle Beach and we had um, service on the beach. And so I never had like an Easter dress because we were like in our bathing suits and stuff, which was really fun. And I always had an egg hunt with um, like our little beach house. We knew the neighbors on all the sides. And so all the grandkids, they were like a generation of friends who bought the beach houses together. And so we all, all the grandkids would be there during Easter week and we would do um, an Easter egg hunt together after being on the beach. So it was super fun. Later, I went uh, in college to my first ever, my best friend in high school was Greek Orthodox. So I actually went to a Greek Orthodox Easter, which is unbelievable to experience. I mean, it's just like, I had never, as a total cultural experience. But I mean, I saw the lamb being roasted. I mean, have you ever seen my big fat Greek wedding? You know, like that was my big fat Greek Easter. And so it was just like, I would never seen anything like it, but it was beautiful. I'd love to hear what is a family tradition for you guys on Easter? What was Easter like for you? Um, it's not like exclusively a family tradition per se, but um, one thing that I really enjoyed about Easter, um, so um, the Lenten season is my personal favorite season mm -hmm. in the calendar. Um, I love the like stillness and reflection. Um, and then I think our Holy Week services are some of the most beautiful in the year. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Good Friday, of course, ends in silence, um, which doesn't happen any other time in the church calendar um, in a liturgical church. Yeah. Um, but Easter Sunday, um, they had a, a 5.30 a.m. sunrise service mm -hmm. that we would go to. Um, and it's uh, it has a silent processional, which is very nerve-wracking if you're the crucifer because everybody's looking at you. <laughs> um, and the cross is usually heavier, so if you drop it, like it's a whole thing. Um, but it's silent, um, and then, uh, you know, the pastor reaches the front, um, and you do the, the, he is risen, um, and at the end of that, they would pull the sash off of the cross, um, and turn the lights on, and, like, everything would erupt in noise. Yeah. So, 
It makes me emotional. Yes. No. Yes. That was so my experience with the Greek Orthodox Easter that I went to. I went Good Friday, their Saturday, and their Sunday. No, they don't have a Saturday because he's in the tomb. So throughout the week, they have been like decorating the church with flowers. Um, I don't remember exactly what happened. It was like a two hour service on Good Friday, maybe even longer. But you like, you like journey through in Greek. Um, but there's like an English parallel of the like the whole discourse of what happens on Good Friday, and it ends with the priest like there's this processional out of the church as if you're following him to the cross, and so the church is like in this solemn, somber thing, and everybody like proceeds and follows him, follows the priests around the church, and there's just like songs of lament happening. And it's dark. It's like really late at night. And um, you leave the church in silence. And then you come in on Easter morning and you all gather out front of the doors of the church. And the priest stands on the doors and he pounds on the doors and no one's inside. And he says, the tomb is empty. And they erupt in Christos Anesti, which means, yeah, Christ is risen, Christ is risen. And then you go in for the celebration and it's, it's still that chilling experience. And so what we are going to be studying is both the deliverance and the institution of like the pinnacle celebration for the Jews. So what Easter is to us, this is to the Jews historically, and is still today to the Jews. And so, especially in Ann Arbor, where there's a diverse group of people, you actually will probably know some people who might be celebrating Passover. And so this year, it actually starts on Friday, and then it will go through the next Friday. And what I've learned about how Passover is celebrated, um, I actually learned that Coca-Cola, during this time, releases special Coca-Cola bottles that they have a yellow lid and they're kosher for Passover, which means that they've removed the corn syrup from their um, Coke for, for kosher um, celebration. But what is happening during this time is there is a deep cleaning of their homes that happens days, like actually like weeks ahead of time, where they are removing all crumbs of flour from their house, wherever you could potentially have flour. And I was looking at like um, modern websites about it. I mean, there's like, you know, there's like the, the mommy blogs that like have all these ideas. Well, there's like Jewish mommy blogs for sure out there telling you how to deep clean for Passover in less than 10 days if you're in that crunch, but they really recommend a month of cleaning. Um, yeah, sorry. Yes, <laughs> yes, but here's their hope. And this is what's gonna be really interesting. And I have begun as I read it, I can even hear some instruction of Jesus and his rebuke against the Pharisees later in Jesus' life. They do all of that cleaning and they have separate everything. It's easier, they've learned. It's easier to have a separate oven, separate towels, separate everything because you can't guarantee. And if you can, um, you know, if you can't afford a separate oven, you can deep, there are ways to deep clean yours for, for, to be kosher. But the promise is that if you can clean all the leaven from your house, you will be sin free for a year. So their hope is built on, they are good to coast if they do all of this deep cleaning throughout 
the, this week and they celebrate the feast rightly. And so I, as I was reading this, I began praying for my Jewish friends this week because that's a, that's a crushing weight. It's a, it's a false lie for them to be built upon. And we're going to get the privilege of seeing what actually scriptures are saying here. So if you will turn with me to chapter 11. As we jokingly said, we are at the pushing part of labor. <laughs> um, but we, uh, we need to remember that we're going to be seeing the deliverance happening, not just out of the land of Egypt, but God is inviting them into the promised land. So this deliverance comes with an entrance into something else. It's not just an exiting of that we're going to be seeing. So let's read chapter 11 and see what happens. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, this is, uh, let me pause really quick and say, that's our pattern here, right? The Lord said to Moses, and then Moses is going to say something. So let's see. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man is of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, so transitions, that's what the Lord said. Now Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of, the, of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and of all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be great cry throughout all the land of Egypt as there has never been, nor will there ever be, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his hand, out of the land. Okay. <laughs> That's so sweet. I like I actually call most at home with those kind of noises happening. Um, okay. So what is happening here? He says, here comes this plague that we've heard about. We've heard about this firstborn. But first what's going to happen is that there's going to be a plundering of the Egyptians. We have heard that and Alyssa kind of alluded to it. And we're going to dive into that in a little bit. Um, they will get a ton of favor from the Egyptians. Now, this is so interesting. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they're going to be willing to give over everything. But at this point, think of all the plagues 
that Amy has laid out, and they are like, I don't know what that dude is not seeing, but you have the right God, the powerful God, like, whatever you need, we are, we are allies here, like, we are here for you, you know, like, this is, this is nuts, I don't know what he's doing, we are here for you. And it says that this man, Moses, was very great in the eyes of everybody, including Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So now every domino has been laid down except for Pharaoh, right? The gods have been knocked over, the people's hearts, and and Pharaoh's Pharaoh's servants have been. And so here's here's the plan. All the firstborns are going to die. Israel's going to be spared, and this is when you're going to leave Egypt. So we've gotten to this point now, people, and Moses. Okay. So here's the questions that kind of comes from this text when I read it. Why was this the plan? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought about that with the cross? And you're like, is there any other way that Jesus could, like, that we could have been reconciled to God? And obviously, as we study scripture, we see this imagery all over scripture as to why this is the right plan. And yet we also, we, we ask the same thing, like, did, you were talking about the collateral damage of being around people who are hard-hearted and the pain that you feel like. And the entire nation, firstborn, dies. Like, let that sink in with you. Like, that's like painful. I mean, I'm a firstborn. Like, hey, you know. Um, and so we it causes us to wrestle with, God, what were you doing here in this plan? And here's here's my way we have to think about this. What this is showing to us is that God is infinitely wise. We can't understand His ways. What He is orchestrating is beyond our comprehension. And yet, the stamp of the gospel is on all of creation. So we see these kind of pictures throughout all of humanity. That there must be, okay, firstborns, we see that in Isaac. We know we see that in Jesus. There is a refrain of the firstborn, and we're going to even see that. We know that blood is a right, is, is a penalty. It's, it's the symbol of death. So what happens after the garden and the fall? Cain and Abel. The, actually, it's the covering. The first thing that happens when they realize that they are naked, God gives them animal clothing and there's blood. All of a sudden, because of our brokenness, in order for us to relate to God, Blood that is a symbol of the extent of the brokenness of our humanity, the extent of our sin. And so it, blood has to be shed because God is holy. There's also God's justice on display here because what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh killed God's firstborn son in killing of his people by uh, trying to kill the firstborn uh, voice. God is just. He will not be mocked. There is a punishment for that. But on the flip side to justice is mercy and kindness, right? 
And so he's going to use and redeem that brokenness to get people, Pharaoh, everyone, to a point of brokenness. They could have repented before now. But at this point of brokenness, he's going to meet them there. He's going to show himself to be the one true God. And so he is going to redeem this terrible situation to put his glory so that his wonders may be multiplied. And this passage also makes us ask some translations use the, um, say that it's the firstborn son. A lot of our translation says just firstborn. And so it's like, is it just the boys who are going to die? No. It's everyone because it says, like, there's not a household that is spared. Mm -hmm. It says even the slave girl. Like, it says that phrase. So everyone, their firstborn, humans and beasts, from Pharaoh's house down to the slave girl, Mm -hmm. every house is touched by this. But how are they going to sleep? How are they going to die? Commentators really believe because it's at midnight, it's peacefully in their sleep, is their guess. There's probably some mercy to it. There's not this like grim reaper going around and like taking people out. The firstborns go to bed that night and never wake up. Why does this happen though? It says in verse nine, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh was given a chance to be spared and say, okay, you can go before we get there, right? Like he could have sent them out after all the other plagues, but even at this warning, he should actually know that these things are really going to happen. But he is so obstinate and hard-hearted that all he had to do was to look and in humility receive God's authority, but he did not. As I think about parenting and as I think about disciple making, one of the things I'm seeking to cultivate in myself and in others is an ability to to listen and receive instruction. And that is a pathway to life. For us to fear, Proverbs says, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What Pharaoh did not have was the ability to say, I am not my ultimate authority. I must receive instruction. But God is going to make, is going to use this broken situation to ultimately make himself known in Egypt as the one true God. So let's see what happens next. Chapter 12. What we're going to see in the structure is that it's going to be the Lord says, if you kind of skim ahead in the paragraphs, there's going to be the Lord says, and then Moses says, which is kind of following that same pattern, and then the people say or do. Now this is where it's really interesting. It presses pause, the narrative. We've been walking through like action, 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 action. And it presses pause to give a discourse on a future celebration. And you kind of like read it and you're like, wait, like, why did it just happen? You know, like, why does it, why is this like discourse happening right here? And so what we know about the text when Moses was writing, we don't know exactly what the situation was, but likely it was probably in the wilderness, somewhere between Mount Sinai and, you know, his death before they enter the promised land. He's writing and recalling what has happened that night. And he knows that there's a new generation who's going to enter into the promised land. 
And he is writing for instruction. He's writing for the people. He's writing to preserve. But he's also writing for an instruction of where what needs to happen in the promised land. And so he's going to press pause here to say, like, this could have happened and when we study in Exodus later. We're going to be studying the Ten Commandments, and it's going to have lots of thought. Like, after the Ten Commandments comes the law, and it's going to have lots of things about how you relate to God and different practices. And this would have been more natural in our mind to be, like, filed away, like, in that section. But he's going to bring it up here to say, like, this is pinnacle. This is when it happened. And God gave us this instruction now. This is what we're going to do. And it's going to be brought up later throughout the law. But this is where it comes in. He's going to bring that like braided cord down and say, remember, this is important. So it's beginning to show us our, some of our responsibilities in the covenant that he, of grace that he gives us. So press his pause. Um, and this is what uh, it says. So let's read verses 1 through 13. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel and of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread, and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not let any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its heads uh, with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let any of it remain, uh, shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In the same manner, you shall eat it. You're with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I'm just going to say, press pause. Remember how Amy was talking about in the last session, this I will, I will, I will. Here we go. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, what are some things that are happening here? First of all, we see that the month, their calendar year, is totally reoriented right now. He says, Abib is now your new beginning of your year. Your whole life 
now is oriented around this moment. Mm -hmm. Then he's going to describe the lamb. It's going to be a male. It's going to be perfect. And it's going to be a year old. And literally that means like a year, like they were usually bred and it doesn't mean young. It means like they probably are, this is their first, they're just at a year old. Um, they're going to put the blood on the doorpost. You're going, this is funny. Okay, so you get it on the 10th day of the month and then you're gonna keep it with you as like a little house pet for four days. Hope your kids don't name it. And then you're going to kill it at twilight. Just kidding. Like, kind of. <laughs> uh, and then, okay, well, here's what you're going to eat that night. You're going to eat that lamb. Here's how much of the lamb you should have. You should have a lamb that's according to your family's size. And if you're not big enough for a lamb, I mean, some of us might need, like, a Costco-sized lamb, you know? <laughs> um, but if you're, not, if you're not a big family, compare with somebody else. It can be a lamb or a goat. But it's got to be an adequate size, enough, not too much not too little, it's an adequate size for you. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, you're gonna be eating unleavened bread, hmm, wonder what that is, bitter herbs, and um, you're going to eat it in the, you're gonna cook it in the fastest way possible, is what's being said there. <coughs> Roasted was the fastest way possible. You're gonna be eating fast food guys for dinner tonight <laughs> with a lot of symbolism. The bitter herbs were likely like salad that was like just pulled out, like the plant just pulled out. Like you're gonna eat this hasty meal and you're gonna eat it dressed and ready to go. So you're eating this with your coat on, your keys in your hand, your shoes on your feet, your cell phone in your pocket, your purse on your shoulder. You're eating this meal like poised. Yeah. And every year you're going to remember that you're going to do you're going to do this activity to remember that feeling of just in a moment I'm going to be shot out. Don't get too comfortable. This is where we're going, and you're going to see that this is the Lord's Passover by this I will I will I will. This is a covenant of grace when Abraham fell asleep and God walked through the covenant, this is God saying again, I am going to do all of these things. I am the God who sees and acts. I am going to execute judgment. And when I see that blood, I will pass over you. So let's look at some of these interesting things. So what does um, the unleavened bread going to represent, we're gonna find out, but it is going to represent sin. The bitter herbs are gonna represent slavery. <coughs> the size of the lamb is going to represent the adequate and perfect amount that you need. Later, it's gonna tell us that you can't break its legs or any bones in its body. What does that remind you of? Hmm. Okay, let's read verses 14 through 20. This shall be for you. Hmm. We went from a lot of eyes, so let's see what happens with these use. This shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. 
seven days you shall not eat you shall shall eat unleavened bread on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly on the seventh day a holy assembly no work shall be done during those days but whatever what everyone needs to eat that alone may be prepared and you shall observe the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month of evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Okay. So what is happening here? He says, all right, so when, when this happens, you're going to have made this meal. You're going to eat it ready. And now all of a sudden, this is going to be a memorial day for you. You're going to do this. And on seven days, you're going to, you're going to sweep your house out of leaven. So for seven days, you're going to eat this unleavened bread. On the first day, you're going to take out all the leaven. And then if you eat leaven, that person's going to be removed from Israel. Um, you're going to have a holy assembly. You can't work during that time. Um, and you're going to do this throughout your generations. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. So I want us to see what are these two things, these two passages, you've got 13, or what is it? We're at uh, 1 through 20, teach us about God. So it's funny, we have this little song, you learned that we have weird songs. We have a song about heifers, but we also have a song that we sing that are the attributes of God. And I sang through this song, to like, hmm, I wonder if our God is wise, generous, loving, and good, and faithful, and create, not unfaithful, faithful, and create. I'm like, yeah, actually, there was, it's 25 attributes, and he has all 25 in these passages. So here we see very heavily that he is a deliverer. We see that he is um, going to bring out his people. We are going to see that he is merciful hmm how in the world do you think he is merciful I'm going to let somebody kind of ponder on that how do you think we see God's mercy on display here because he made a plan to redeem because it wasn't an all-inclusive judgment there was a way to escape that must mean that he's merciful. Yes. My head almost exploded when Amy made the reference about the hail and that if anybody would listen and get in, they would be saved. I'm like, oh my gosh, God's been inviting anybody into this, into, into the salvation from the very beginning. Okay, we see that he is holy here. How do we see that God is holy in these passages? 
define them exactly how to do it and to gird your feet and stand up straight and do every little thing exactly right. Yes, there is a way. He's, he's instituting the way in which we relate. But we're beginning to see that there's a symbol of holiness that's related to blood and that in order for him to pass over, the deliverance and the holiness are going to meet here and we're going to have to be covered by blood in order for us to be spared. And we learn that he cares that we remember his promises. We remember what he's done. And so institutionalizing this act of remembrance. But what do we see about the gospel? Because there are some things that are just like exploding off the page about the gospel. So I'm going to grab another water bottle because these are teeny tiny. Thank you. And <laughs> I'm going to actually ask you guys to tell me what, do you, what pictures of the gospel do you see in these passages, in this passage of these verses? I love that it was enough, that it wasn't in excess, that every single part was used. You know, obviously the cooking part stood out to me a lot. And it's like, oh, like you are making this like a complete sacrifice. There isn't any leftover. And if there is, we're burning it all. Like it, nothing's wasted and nothing's too much. You know, it's, it's the perfect sacrifice. And it, it totally points to Christ being the perfect sacrifice. How? Keep going. Because his atonement was complete. It was one and done. There wasn't any any part of, of redemption that's wasted or squandered or didn't meet that standard. And that, I love that, like, we're like, oh, we're not a big enough family, so like, let's get with another family so that then it can cover enough. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, oh, you have like two people in your family. No, go ahead, use the boat, big old lamb, and then waste some of it. Like, or if you aren't a big family, you aren't good enough. Yeah, but, you know, right. like there's a covering for exactly. all people adequately in this and sacrifice. rich and poor and whatever. Everybody. Yes. All right. Another picture of the gospel on display here. Just shout them out. The distinction is that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Like, wheat and tares, goat and sheep. Like, he's mm-hmm. constantly, there's those that are in Christ and those who are not. It's mm-hmm. an exclusive gospel. Yes, yes. Well, I'm sort of jumping off from that. There's, like, the community aspect of it as well. Um, because, like, if you are a bunch of single people and can't eat a lamb all by yourself. You're going to get your single people together. You know what I mean? So, yes. <laughs> right, or you come into our house, right, too, right, either right. way. Yes. So um, just the, the call for um, the not only the, um, the, the act of, like, communal remembrance mm-hmm. um, and reverence and worship, but also the that community is meant to, like, transcend just a holiday. Yes. Yes. One anothering. What do you notice about the lamb? Okay, first of all, who is the lamb in our gospel picture? Hmm. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1 and see what happens here. John chapter 1, verse 29. This is talking of 
John the Baptist, and Jesus. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb here. He is a male, young, perfect and sinless, and his body was broken for us. The bitter herbs to us are a picture of our slavery to sin. The hyssop in which will be used to paint the door frame was likely in the mixture of drink that's offered to Jesus on the cross. And like Trey said, you will eat it all. It is perfect. The gospel is perfect and enough. And it is just like in the Lord's Supper. So let's go to Matthew 26. Chapters are verse 17 through 19 and 26 through 29. Okay. So on the first day of the unleavened bread, so this is happening at the same exact time that the Israelites were faithful, they were faithless in some times in history. Chapter Matthew 26, verses 17 through 19, and then we'll do 26 and 29, through 29 as well. Um, so this is happening during the Passover. And it says, on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into a city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And then it's going to talk about Judas, which is important too, but we're going to skip down for the sake of where we're at in 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new to you in my Father's kingdom. So, what we're going to look uh, what we're going to see here is that Jesus, obviously, is the Passover lamb. His, cru his crucifixion happens during the Passover. Likely what has happened is that this likely was actually the day before the actual Passover began, that he actually was crucified on the Passover, because traditionally it was a Friday that he was crucified. He likely prepared his Passover meal before, and they were supposed to slaughter their lambs at twilight the day before. So Thursday, about the time the lambs are being slaughtered, Jesus is eating an early Passover dinner with his disciples, having this conversation. And then traditionally, the Jews are going to be having the Passover feast while he's on the cross. And during that time, he's, he connects himself to the Passover, and he says, this unleavened bread, leaven represents sin, this bread 
with sinless bread is my body that I am breaking for you. So he is the bread, bread of life. We're going to see in, um, in John, he refers to himself as that. He is also the lamb in which you eat. And he is the vine, but he, we're not in that. His blood is what we drink. It is perfect and complete, and that is why we remember the Lord's Supper. It is enough for us. His body is enough. So we're going to look back to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and you're going to see what in the world is happening that they are saying for them to do. So they're going to go through this um, cleaning of their house, like I was referring to with our Jewish friends who are in it right now, or about to start it. They are, I mean, there's rules about, like, if there is um, more than, like, a dime of um, leaven in their whole house, like, they are contaminated, you know? And so you think about, like, when you eat pretzels and you, like, crunch on something and it, like, ends up on your floor, like, they're feverishly looking for all of it. And they're going to get rid of it all for seven, or they're going to have to have a totally leaven-free house for seven days. So they're working ahead of time to sweep out that leaven. And then they're going to eat and feast on this meal that we've talked about. And then um, then it's over. Like, it's a seven-day thing that they do this for. But, like, some of the really fascinating cultural things that happen right now is like obviously a lot of alcoholic drinks would have like a wheat or a barley or different things in it. And and so what happens a lot of times, and this is like I when I was reading this, I was like, no wonder Jesus flipped the temples in the temple. Because what happens is like if a man has like a really expensive bottle of scotch or like something that he doesn't really want to get rid of, they have to get rid of it all, they sell it all, they're a totally purged like house, they will sell it to the the synagogue leaders, who then sells it to a non-Jewish person, who then has a, a buyback agreement at the end of the seven days that then you can buy it back from you. Uh huh. And so they have all of these workarounds on like how to how to preserve and get your house leaven free and not own anything, but don't worry, seven days later you can buy all of this back and have it all back, and it'll be fine. You'll just do it again the next year, and it's going to cleanse you. But what, what Jesus is saying, and what, or what, he does say this too, but what the scriptures are saying here is that there should be a ceremonial cleansing of leaven to remember what's happened and for you to be diligent about this search. And so like, if you think about how we, some people celebrate Lent or light Advent candles, it's this searching of leaven is supposed to be this like picture of a tangible representation of like the diligence in which we purge sin from our lives. So it's supposed to be this act of ceremonial like worship that's a picture for us of the diligence in which we clean the corners of our lives, not this false system where we feel like we're coasting and we can keep our hearts hardened to the Lord because we've done the external. I mean, like, I'm like, the whitewashing of tombs, why are you cleansing the outside when your hearts are filthy? You know, that's what, what Jesus rebukes, and that's what has been happening. But what is what they what the Bible is saying here is do this to pass on to your children. So let's see. Okay. 
Now we're also going to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. So what's so interesting is I was thinking about it. I remember that there was a passage that talks about Jesus as the Passover lamb. And I was like, where is that? So let's read and see what it is. It's in a very odd place. In my mind, I actually thought it would be in Romans because I thought it sounded like a great like theological discourse where he's going to like layer and connect these beautiful imagery. Or maybe in Hebrew, it's not by Paul. But Paul, like there would be some like beautiful connection. It's not. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right in the midst of talking about sexual immorality. That's weird. Let's see why. <laughs> let's look at verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, so why in the world is that what is, is connected here? So what is happening in this passage and what it helps us see, you know, sometimes you look at, you have to, in order to interpret scripture, you have to look at what is, like where other passages of scripture reference it to draw out its meaning. So where do we learn that leaven really represents sin is like right here. So Jesus, Jesus, our Passover lamb, what Paul is saying here is likely this was, this passage was being written during like the first Easter celebration. This might be one of the first and earliest recommend or like sightings of Easter in the early church, because it says, let us celebrate the festival. It could be talking. It's likely happening during Passover at bare minimum. There's agreement that this is happening during the Passover because it's such an easy picture for, for Paul to pull out. But it is likely actually talking about an early picture of Easter. But he's saying, so you have been in a sexually immoral church and you're boasting about all the stuff that's happening in your church. Do you not know and do you not see that you've done this backwards? What's supposed to happen in our celebrations? You're supposed to purge the leaven and then sacrifice the lamb. But don't you know, the lamb's been sacrificed and there's still leaven remaining? You should have been diligent in the purging of sin, not because it's what saves you, but in response to the fact that this is who you are and you're a redeemed people. And he says, you have done this all backwards. You have leaven remaining here. And we're going to come back to see what in the world that is. And so we now can associate leaven and sin together. Let's keep going. Exodus 12, 21 through 27. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door until the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house or to strike you. And you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. 
And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Okay. So Moses now is calling everybody and says exactly what God has said to him. And there's a few details that he adds this time. He says, okay, you're going to do all of this. You're going to kill this lamb. You're going to put the, the blood on your door. None of you shall go out of your house until morning. Stay inside. Don't leave. And this is the same pattern that we, will, we have seen and we will continue to see over and over again. If you are going to be spared, you are going to look and live. You are going to listen and obey. This reminded me so much of what we see in Numbers chapter 21, verses uh, 8 and 9. So when um, Israel's out in the wilderness in the, um, and there's like, they're grumbling and God sends serpents and they bite them on their ankles and they have a way out and a way of escape. How are they going to be saved? If they look at the serpent on the pole, they will live. So if you hear the word, you respond to the word, and you stay in the house. Then you're also going, they're told, to pass this down. So when you get to the promised land and your children ask you what this means, you shall tell them that he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and struck the Egyptians. God has a plan for the story of redemption to be passed down through families. There is a mighty and fearsome responsibility of parents. But not just parents, we are all called to make disciples. And so we have this, there is this um, responsibility for us to pass down the faith that is given here. I want us to hop over really quick. This reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is also, or I might not read the whole thing, it's long, but this is what happened, what God has told the people to do before they go into the promised land. Now, this is the commandment and statutes and rules that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes which I commanded you all the days of your life. Okay. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. Let's pause there and say, remember, obedience leads to blessing. Be careful to do it. It will make may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So here's the, this is the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these are the words that I command you today. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on a sign on your hand. And as frontlets between your eyes, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house 
and on your dates. Then, why are you gonna, where are you gonna pass all these things down? Why are you going to teach your children to do this? Because remember, God is not drawing us out of slavery, but into a promised land, a gracious promised land. So when the Lord your God brings you into that land, this is now Israel right on the brink of entering it. And he brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great cities that you didn't build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the people who are around you, is, for the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, a.k.a. what happened in Egypt, and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. And he's going to continue to tell them, um, remember this, pass this down, tell your children of the work of God in your life. But this role is not exclusively for parents. All people are called to make disciples and pass down the faith. We see that in 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verse 2. We see that in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, that we are called to make disciples to tell the story of God's goodness again and again and again and again. So they hear this call, and what do the people do? The people, so we've had God said, then Moses called, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. The people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So we see this pattern again, you hear, you believe, you worship, and it calls to action. So they hear, they go, yes, and then they go and they do. So now it's going to happen. Here's the actual Passover, guys. All of that was just the warning, which is what makes me go, that's a long-winded discourse on the warning <laughs> and the institution of the Passover. So now it really is going to happen. And I want you guys... We've talked about it a lot. You hear it retold. This time as we read it, I want you to imagine it, okay? So, imagine that you're broken from the plagues, right? Despair, three days of darkness, it's just happened. Really tired of this journey. Right beforehand, the, the, right before all these plagues happened, things got worse for you in your slavery, you are already a broken people. There's this anxiety from all the other plagues, but honestly, they've been in the land for a really long time. And so this is their home and they've just been told that this is when they're gonna get shot out. But like, this isn't just like where they were raised, but for 430 years, this is where their people have been and where they're headed out to, they don't know. And so this is where their grandparents' cemetery is. 
This is the house in which they built. And they've got to do this thing. But they have the remedy. They're going to be spared. They know people are going to die all around them that night. And they're wondering, like, is this going to work? I guess it is because God's proven himself to be faithful. But is this going to be enough? Oh, wait, I have the answer. Do I go tell my friends and make sure they're in the house? They cook this meal. It feels like fast food when you're having to hurry. Is it, does it taste good? Will it taste good for Jesus during his Last Supper? This would have been their Last Supper because honestly they eat manna and quail and water from the rock until they enter the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. So let's read what happens. Verses 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn, struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants, all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Aaron up by night and said, "Up, go out from among my people, you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, and as you have said, be gone. And bless me also? I don't know what he was thinking there. <laughs> but get out the whole thing. Whatever you want, I'm done. I'm holding my firstborn, I'm to a point of brokenness. So when the sun had set for three days and not risen, and Ra was defeated, this is the moment where Pharaoh bends his knee. But it came at great cost for him and for all the people. But God is faithful to who he says he's going to be, and he sends out his people on that night. The question we have to ask when we read this is like, what really separated Egypt and Israel? Like, was Israel any more holy than, than Egypt? No. The only thing that separated them was that they slaughtered the lamb and they got in the house. It is a covenant of grace and mercy over them. And isn't it so good of God to take an awful circumstance and redeem it? In, we have seen that his glory is going to be put on display. He's doing these things so that he is known as the one true God. And so God, this a commentator I read said this so well. God, in effect, was saying mercifully to Egypt. This, this plan had Egypt in mind. That um, you should pay attention to no other God I have powerfully demonstrated to you that they don't exist. I have demonstrated to you what happens to people when they think they do. So you, from the very beginning, have created this polytheistic society, and I have mercifully entered in to show you that they are powerless and you are worshiping the false gods. Trust me alone, and you have made the choice from which everything else important follows. I am the one true God. So Israel is shot out, 
Egypt gives them their valuables. What happens with the valuables? Let me tell you what's going on there. Can you just imagine being like, hi, like, can I have your gold? You know, like, I'm like, how does that situation come out? I don't know. But what was customary in that time is that slaves, you know, slavery, we have a wrong, not a wrong, we have a very right understanding of slavery from our heinous past. But slavery in biblical times is ancient times is different than slavery today. And ancient slavery that was customary that when they were released that the captors gave them provisions for the way. They knew that they were powerless and owned nothing. And so that they gave them enough to establish what they needed to like establish to get on their own feet. So it was, what was happening here was that their, their captors were preparing them, but in a very extravagant and big way, they were going to be sent out with this gold. But what's really interesting, I thought this was fascinating, the, the cross-reference here actually goes to Ephesians 4, verse 9. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4 and 9. Like, what the heck is that about plundering the Egyptians? Fun fact, this is the exact passage Michael's writing his PhD dissertation on. So if you ever need questions answered on Ephesians 4, I'm not your girl, but he is able to answer most of them. Okay. It's eight, actually, eight and nine. Sorry, I meant to say that. So, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Okay. <laughs> um, so, what this is, let's kind of look at the context here. So, he's, Paul is telling them, like, he's urging them towards unity. And he's telling them that, basically, this there are gifts. There's something that's called the unity. and You're called to unity. And then there's these gifts that the church that the Lord has given to the church to, to be established and healthy. So this when he ascended on high, it's Jesus, he, he gave gifts to men. It is saying that Jesus, when we were set free from the bond of slavery, he gave us a gift. And we're all gonna go, oh, spiritual gifts, I know that answer. It's not. It is the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. That's not even talking about your church leaders. There's an argument and debate. That's what actually, that's the exact verse that Michael's on. Um, but it's not talking about like your elders and deacons and all that. That's a gift to you. It's saying that the early church fathers, the early church leaders, I mean, not fathers, like the original church leaders established and preserved the local church and God, it preserved the scriptures, and it gave them just enough to get started. Doesn't that sound a lot of like when, you plund, when you're plundered and you're sent out with just enough to get started? So the gift that Jesus gives us when we are redeemed from slavery, from sin, is the early church leaders who established the local church and taught and faithfully made disciples and told them what Jesus had taught them. And that's what we needed. That was sufficient for us to go on our way. But though they were given these gracious gifts of provision, they actually had none of their own possessions from home. They had their kneading bowls in their back. Their bread wasn't able to, to be, uh, live, the, sorry, the, the bread was not leavened. They had no real provisions. And this journey from the wilderness into the promised land is going to make them rely on God. So who came out that night? 
We're gonna see that it was a perfect number. That 600,000 doesn't necessarily mean a literal 600,000. That's a, a, um, like a literary device that's saying a large amount exactly who God intended. There's an art, there's a number thing that tells you that that's what that means. Um, it's a mixed multitude. Interesting? Hmm. What does that mean? That means there were Egyptians in the midst who leave that night. God is putting himself on display. Israel goes out and their livestock, just like God said that they would. How long were they in Egypt, it says? 430 years. Hmm. Genesis 15, verse 13. Anyone? Abraham, let's go there really fast and see God on display. Genesis 15, 13. And it says, uh, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land, not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for 400 years. There's argument on, was it 400, 430? It's this rounded number that is perfect and complete. From here forward, we're going to continue to see God in chapter 13 illustrate what um, this celebration is going to look like. A lot of the consecration of the firstborn, um, it's going to say a lot of the same details about Abib being the beginning of the month, purge, all the leaven, you're going to eat this Passover meal. The new thing that's added now in chapter 13 is that the firstborn is set apart. In verse 8 of chapter 13, it's going to continually say, like, you should do this to tell, pass down to your sons, to pass down to your sons. But what I love about 8 is it goes from communally, you shall tell that this is what the Lord did to Israel, is what all the other passages say. This verse says, you shall tell your son what, you, what I did for you when you came out of Egypt. We need to be mindful of telling the story, the grand narrative of scripture, what God's at work in doing throughout all of humanity. And we need to do the work of telling people what God did to us. Mm-hmm. The question is, did Jesus, did, I mean, how did Jesus do this? Did Israel do this? Did they institute, did they keep the Passover? Yes and no. And we see later, that they have it for a while and then it kind of falls off during the time of the judges. And it's during King Josiah's reign in 2 Kings 22 that he is, um, you know, after the line of David and Solomon and he finds the scrolls and he reads this very text and he goes, we haven't been doing this. And he repents and he weeps and he reinstitutes the Passover, and from there forward to this day, it has been celebrated. But what's interesting is that today, Passover lamb isn't killed. And one of those, hmm, I wonder what God was up to in all of humanity, there hasn't been a Passover lamb that was killed since the fall of the temple in AD 70. Because the humanity pressed pause, it wasn't needed anymore. Jesus had already done it. And so now the celebration is more customary. They eat it. They think about it. But there's not been one like, sacrificed in the temple since AD 70. And so what do we do 
with all of this. Israel has been shot out. Megan pointed out earlier today that I'm gonna leave you on a cliffhanger. They aren't totally redeemed. They aren't totally out yet because Pharaoh's gonna be on their tails. But that's a cliffhanger for summer Bible study. That's where we will start. <laughs> but this week of Easter, as we prepare our hearts for um, celebrating and remembering, what do we do with all of this? We do the only thing that, that these people, that we model and follow what they did. We bow our heads and worship. We hear the word and we're amazed at who God is. The fact that he shot us out of slavery and we're going to worship in response, know that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so I'm going to ask you, and kind of as we close to think about this, what are you going to worship God for today? If you think back to Alyssa's um, initial statements that she said about the themes that God is, let's go back there really quick from the first session. This is why I was feverishly writing them down. Let's see. Okay. God is a God who fulfills his promises. Therefore, he can be trusted. No matter what you're facing, he can be trusted. God is a God who delivers out of sin, out of darkness, and we can have hope. God is a God who sees and acts. He sees you. He sees what you're walking through. And I know that I'm not alone. God is a God who is the creator of life. He births a people. He's, he is the foundation. He's the one where who made Moses' mouth. In him, I know I have life. God is a God who uses broken people. He used Moses. He had a plan for Israel to be a light to the nations that all people may know and see him. Therefore, God can use me. Not only are we going to respond in worship, but we're also going to respond in obedience. We're going to look and live. We're going to get in the house. Whatever that means, where the Lord is, is instructing you, we are going to stay in the gospel. Where the gospel is the entrance and the life of the daily, uh, is the entrance to uh, knowing God and is the daily life of the believer. We're going to also purge the leaven in our hearts. We're going to, we're going to be feverish in killing sin, not just getting rid of the flower in our house. Then we're going to live ready. Why are we dressed and ready to go? Because we are looking forward to a greater promised land, the return of Christ. And so as we live with our coats on and our keys in our hand and we're feasting, we are going to be living with that day in mind. And then we're going to be Remembering, So we are going to worship, we're going to obey, and we're going to remember. We're going to remember and reflect on all that God has done in our lives. We're going to stir up in us a remembrance of the story of, his, of the grand narrative of Scripture to remind ourselves of who God said he is, and we're going to do it in a personal way to see what has God been at work in our hearts and our lives. We're going to pass it down to the next generation. Um, 
and we are going to tell them about what God has done. For the believer, we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to see what it says. It said, as we were talking about Jesus as our Passover lamb, Paul says, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what we are going to do is we feast, and as we walk with God, and as we remember, we're going to live lives of daily celebration. But this is what's unique. I heard Rebecca kind of talk about this in a personal conversation, Rebecca and Gertie, um, talking about a believer is really marked with a joy that's weird, right? It's, it's unrecognizable. And for some of us who live have lived in that for a while, we might not see it anymore. But celebration and this feasting and remembering is a distinctive mark of the Christian community. We feast on the scriptures. We enjoy him. We delight in him through worship and song. We talk about him. We live to make him known. He is our daily bread. He is our source of life. The Christian's Passover doesn't last a week. It is his whole life. There's an early church father that says, for a true Christian, it is always Easter, always Pentecost, and always Christmas. And so the world is waiting to see a church, a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, and which, in which its times of gathering combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. So when, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let us feast in the wilderness, he was talking about what happened on Sinai. But there's this invitation that we're going to be feasting. We're going to be feasting with God on the Passover, on the manna, on the quail, and one day in a land flowing of, with milk and honey. Some days it might feel a little bit more like manna and quail, you know? But God is in our midst, and we will be his people. Let's pray.